Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today we're taking you to Seabright Dublin in early spring with an extract from Montpellier Parade by Carl Geary. This year it was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award. It's a moving look at how deeply we can connect with one another and the choices we must make alone. I'm not going to say much more about it. I'm going to let the beautiful prose speak for themselves. This is an extract from Montpellier Parade, read by the author himself. The world's a frightening place. Joe McCann scooped up a lump of minced beef with his fingertips and pushed it inside a small white plastic bag. True as God, Joe says. True as God. Hughes stood beside Mrs. Anderson, cleaning the glass meat counter, using folded newspaper and water mixed with a couple of tablespoons of vinegar. At the side of Mrs. Anderson's head, where the bandage stopped, you could see the bruising, black and blue. That's just over a pound's worth, Mrs. Anderson. Is that all right for you? He didn't wait for an answer. He sealed a little bag with a string of red tape and set it on the counter like a white balloon. Mrs. Anderson's hand trembled when she reached across the counter with some coins. It was an effort for her to pick up the bag of meat and rearrange her shopping bag to accommodate it. I hope they find them, says Joe. I know they will. I know they will, he says. Get that door for Mrs. Anderson, will you, Sonny? He took the wet newspaper into your armpit and ran and opened the shop door for her. The bell over the door made a thin sound as she left the shop and you felt the sodden newspaper through your shirt. Listen, good luck to you now. Good luck, says Joe. Mick came from the back room and stood beside him. Dreadful, says Mick, as he slowly ran his hands out over his apron. He could never tell if he meant something or if he was winding you up. You just weren't good at that sort of thing. He winked at you when he knew Joe wasn't looking. They stood in silence, Joe and Mick, side by side like bookends, suddenly still, as if their last thought was important, something they didn't want to forget. Joe was tall, fifty or something like fifty, a face so mild that you couldn't look at it for long without turning. There was a new supermarket less than a mile away. Mick never said anything about it in front of Joe, how it was only the old people who didn't drive that came to the butcher shop how the shop stood between a post office and a Chinese takeaway, like a jilted lover, unable to account for its misfortunes. When the glass counter was clean, he walked into the back room to get the brush to sweep up the stale sawdust. Mick was bored. You heard him come into the room behind you. He stood in front of the chipped mirror that was hung by a run of rusted wire, wrapped around a nail over the sink. He pulled his comb out like a cowboy with a six-shooter. You ever touch one, Sonny? he says. What? His hair was brown and thin and greasy. The fine comb easily found its way through. Touch one. Did you ever touch one? Touch one what? A fanny. A what? A gee, a growler. A what? Are you deaf? No. Well, yeah, you say. Of course I have. Where is it? Where's what? You don't know, do you? Show me, show me where you think it is. You felt your face flush. It's not where you think it is, you say. Where? Where do I think it is? The skin across Mick's face was mottled. He'd been told not to scratch it when he was young, but he had scratched. You don't know. 
You don't, he says. He put his comb into his back pocket and stood with his hip against a sink a moment, then pushed off it and pulled his apron aside. Here, he says, it's, it's lower than you think. It's, do you know where your balls are? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Right, well, it's between where your balls stop and your arse begins. Mick was bent over himself, showing you when Joe came in and told him, knock it off, you. Mick winked, says, we'll learn you, lad. He walked out front and you heard him say, Mrs. O'Brien, you get younger every time I see you. Joe looked at his watch and then at you. Come on, you, shake a leg. That's right, Miss O'Sullivan. Will that do now, Miss O'Shea? Good enough, Miss McCormick. That's it now. As the fella says, that's it now. And on it went. Mick and Joe, their voices came and went all day like a background radio. You were paid ten pounds a week, one hour after school, except Wednesdays, when you'd mince the sheep's lungs for dog food, and that took an extra hour. You'd worked there over a year and had saved 216 pounds. The light had almost emptied from the sky and in the shop glass you could sense your reflection under the fluorescent light, brush in hand. Beyond, the car lights streamed past. It was near closing time when the bell chimed again and Mr Cosgrove, holding the amber smell of Higgins' pub, nearly fell in the door. He was drunk and Joe was afraid of drunks. He left Mick to serve him. Mr. Cosgrove put his hand on the counter and fanned his fingers out to steady himself. It was only later when you thought about his fingerprints. You had no recollection of cleaning them off the glass, but you must have. They were gone for sure. Mr. Cosgrove dipped his chin to his chest and seemed to be waiting to stop swaying. His smeared newspaper pressed to the side of his old man's overcoat. Is it something for your tea, Mr. Cosgrove? says Mick. He stood with his arms folded and his head cocked to the side. Mr. Cosgrove, something for your tea. Mr. Cosgrove raised his head and gathered Mick in his level stare. Something for my tea, yes. Well, says Mick, have some nice liver there. You can fry that up with some onions, lovely, or uh, I have some burgers fresh made. You can buy two, eat them yourself and give the wife one when you get home. Mick glanced over to make sure he'd heard. Have you a heart? says Mr. Cosgrove. Jesus, I couldn't sell you the heart, Mr. Cosgrove. The wife would never speak to me again. I'd say I'd be hungry after it, says Mr. Cosgrove, but Mick didn't like that. Come on now, says Mick. I'm closing up. Stop wasting me time. Fucking leave me starving, it would. Do you want the liver? says Mick, without looking at Mr. Cosgrove. Go on. Do you want the liver? Didn't I just tell you I did? Look at, if you're going to be thick about it, you can go somewhere else. Give us 50 pence worth, says Mr. Cosgrove. Break the bleeding bank, why don't you? Mick reached into the tray of livers. It was fully dark outside and the cars had their wipers on. Rain clung like ivy to the shop glass. Mick dropped a bag of livers on the counter, tied with perfect red tape. Give us fifty pence for that, Mr. Cosgrove, and there's an extra piece in there for you, all right? So you won't be talking about me. You thought you heard Mr. Cosgrove say something like, good one or good man yourself. Mr. Cosgrove pulled a pile of coins from his pocket, spilling tobacco dust to the floor, and peered into his open hand, lost. Mick took a silver fifty pence. Right-o, he says, without a hint of failure. 
He saluted Mick and noticed you. All right, young sweepy boy. His milky eyes washed over you and he says, You start out as sweepy boy, you'll end up a sweepy boy, unlucky. And he chuckled then. He pushed himself off the counter and went to the door, like he was walking the length of a small rowing boat. The copper bell rang and Joe re-emerged from the back room. You were closest to the door when the crash was heard. Time slowed. You'd heard how that happened. It, it really did. Time slowed and you were given the accident in installments. A car horn first and then, underneath, the sound of rubber dragged at great speed across tarmac. And then the sound you'd imagine a wet, heavy overcoat would make if you dropped it on a hard floor. Mick, Joe and you all froze, like characters in a cartoon. Looked to the sound, to each other and back to the sound. You heard the wooden brush handle hit the floor. And then you were out on the wide path, in the rain, the wind. A small van had jumped the line and sat facing the wrong side of traffic. You could hear the put, put, put of its diesel engine gently turning over. It was perfectly intact save one lit headlight swinging helplessly by its wire. You couldn't find the driver's face, just his white knuckles on the steering wheel. Mr Cosgrove's misshapen body lay across the wet tarmac. His plastic bag had been flung a few feet away from him. It was burst, empty. You couldn't help wondering where the livers might have been when you felt a hand on your shoulder. You could feel the cold of the wet shirt pressed to your skin. People were shouting. Joe was standing in the middle of the road, a hand raised of traffic. The driver from the van had emerged and was on his knees in front of it. His fist was pressed to his forehead and with a splash on the road he was suddenly sick. A small group fixed themselves to the path and compared what they knew from the telly while round the corner came a flashing blue lights of a Garda car. As if it had been hiding back there waiting for this moment. And all the while under Mr Cosgrove's head, a blood pillow, rich and dark and thick, ebbed slowly from some unseen crack. That was the first chapter of Montpellier Parade by Carl Geary. If you'd like to listen to the whole audiobook, it's available to download and own from Audible and iTunes. Don't miss any audio extracts and podcasts by subscribing to the Vintage Podcast page and leave us a review if you fancy.